Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a fantastic day for an interview because I've got Michael Harris with me. Michael Harris is a man who has gone through a hell of a lot of ups and a hell of a lot of downs. Talk about a roller coaster in his life. And when I read his story, I thought, okay, I need to have this guy on because he is, there's so much we can talk about from our common love affair with alcohol to the traumas that uh, seem to be raining down on us like cats and dogs on a, in, a, in a storm. And, and, here we are still now the new and improved versions and we're both authors we are both uh, out there trying to spread the word trying to make this world a better place and you can't have enough allies and and collaborators like that so michael harris welcome to my show i'm, I'm really excited to be here you know it's a little bit uh, early evening right now and all day long has been all just the only thing i've been thinking about is is being on your show and having a conversation with you. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll bring some really good conversation to the listeners and the audience and maybe give them a little inspiration if they need it. Oh, please. And, and that's what we do well, isn't it? Because we both have been in the darkness. And when I tried to sort of plan the interview in my head with you, I thought, hell, there are so many angles where we can start that from your childhood that went pretty pear-shaped early on uh, to, to the alcohol, towards, towards the, the millions of dollars you created in, in various ventures thereafter. But I think let's actually start with, a, with, with when you were a little boy. Because things started very early to go rather not so straightforward. Maybe let's go with that. Sure, sure. You know, in, in honesty, I grew up in a pretty good family. My, my dad was, it was an upper middle class family. My dad owned his own businesses. He did very well for himself. And we had some property where we grew up, which was nice to play on and got to get out there in the little neighborhood creeks and chase the trout and the frogs and the water skippers mm -hmm. and the yellow jackets. Well, sometimes they were chasing us, but um, <laughs> we just had a lot of fun. My dad built a baseball field on our property so wow. we could play baseball out back. And um, we had a lot of fun growing up. Then... And I was I was a golfer, right? I, I, I was a hotshot golfer when, when I was a kid. At 12 years old, I won the junior championship at Portland Golf Club. And, you know, I'd be out there all the day. You know, we were a couple blocks away from the golf course, and I would just play all the time. And so I beat my friend Bobby Atkinson, 12 years old. A <laughs> couple weeks later, we were down at the Oregon coast, and there was a lake down by where we are, and we were water skiing. And I had already started smoking a little bit of pot and drinking a few beers as a kid, right? Just kind of experimenting, playing around a little bit. And I had done that that morning that we had gone water skiing. It was myself, my brother, and a couple of other friends, 17, 18 years old. There wasn't any parents present at the time. And not only was I a hotshot golfer, I was a hotshot water skier. And, you know, like I said, smoked a little pot, had a couple of beers, was out there on the lake, and I liked doing beach landings. Except yeah. this time I did a beach landing and pretty much went <laughs> smack on the beach. I, I saw that. I saw what you just said. <laughs> I heard, I heard, heard it, your silence. It's a German word of appreciation that, that rounds with duck. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I certainly didn't think about this at the time, but it ended up being my first alcohol drug related incident. And it was a doozy. I said, I hit the beach. Initially, the doctor said I was okay, and then we came back to Portland the next day. There wasn't there was a small hospital in that area at the coast. Came back, and I woke up about ten days later, and I found out that I'd had sixty percent of my liver removed, 
my gallbladder, cracked ribs, collapsed lung, and, you know, 21 blood transfusions, and I was lucky to be alive. Mm. Really lucky to be alive. How old were you when that accident happened? 12. 12. So you started early. What did I you started early. Uh, yeah. What did the alcohol give you? Were you a quiet child or why, why was there a temptation? And no one ever smokes a cigarette and says, mmm, yummy. Yeah. Um, you know? So what did the alcohol do? It's tasted shit, but why, why did you drink? I think initially it was a, a peer thing. There was everybody in our neighborhood kind of did it. Like, mm. It was kind of an upper middle class neighborhood, a lot mm. of spoiled kids. And right. they were just out doing whatever they wanted to do, <laughs> you know, even at that Fickle. age. Fickle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't really realize I had a problem, but, you know, in the world of alcoholism, that would be called hitting bottom, literally, right? So what? one of my biggest bottoms happened at 12 years old. <laughs> You're an overachiever. You start oh, early. Yeah, you, yeah. you hit the first I, mark early. Good on yeah. you. <laughs> I got to the bottom as fast as I could, you know. <laughs> <laughs> literally, 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 30, 40 Ks an hour. <laughs> yeah. Okay, shit. So how did it continue? I mean, with the liver, normally they teach you that actually, young man, you need to take it easy. Um, how about no alcohol until you're 25? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, or no alcohol the rest of my life. Ah. You know, and one of the things that had, it was a ruptured liver. So this was 1971. Hmm. It, they did a liver scan a year later, and it had shown that it had grown back. Oh. You know, ruptured liver, it can grow back. Mm. Cirrhosis and some other things, it won't grow back. But so I, I was lucky that I got an organ that could grow back. And I remember after that moment where they did the liver scan and thinking, oh, now I can drink again a little bit. <laughs> a little I, bit a little bit a little bit uh, right? so 13 going on 14 so i start drinking again uh, one of the things i found at that age is i had pretty low self-esteem i'd had a tube in the side of me a drain tube mm. for about six months mm. and i went from this really active kid to laying on the couch or laying on my bed in my bed for about a year and so instead of being the captain of the teams, I was the last one picked or not picked at all. And so my self-esteem really plummeted. And I found when I started drinking or smoking pot that the other kids that did that accepted me, or I, I felt accepted by them. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. You know, so I can do this. I can feel better than what I really am feeling mm. and push that down, mm. that poor self-esteem. I didn't have very good body image, scars all over my chest. And I didn't want to take my shirt off. I had problems with girls a little bit, just for a little bit. Mm. But then there was a couple of girls that kind of felt sorry for myself. So that changed everything too. <laughs> <laughs> Secondary gains, it's called. Secondary gains, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that was, that was what? That was 16, so we are talking about. Uh, you know, 12 yeah. accident, a year in bed, um, and you're slowly coming out. And then with the help of Mariana and alcohol, suddenly the world is no longer as traumatic and as dark. And suddenly there are even girls around. And yeah. because because you had a joint, they did they like a joint as well? Oh yeah. Oh Absolutely. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and there yeah. you are. And that's already the earliest start of connection that we as alcoholics or we as, as as addicts love. We surround ourselves with people of the same ilk, of the same conviction that there's absolutely nothing wrong with us. A bottle of vodka later, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I'm I'm only yeah. social, okay. I mean, he over there now he is an addict, okay. But me, no, 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 no. Oh, excellence, you learned early. You are, you're honestly you're a fast achiever. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah, did very school? Fast go? Yeah. <laughs> How did school go at that time? 
Well, I, I ended up, my parents sent me to a private school my sophomore year in high school because they wanted me a little bit out of Portland. And so I went to this school in Colorado, a college prep school. And there was 49 people in this school. And I was the only one that didn't have to go to study hall. Because they said because my intelligence was high enough that I didn't have to do that. Okay. And we had classes in the morning and we skied in the afternoon. Beautiful. So. I loved it. You know, I was 4.0, what, whatever, past four point, right? Which is typical a lot of alcoholics as, as well. They're highly intelligent. Touché. The next year, I didn't want to go back, and I, I went back to the, the local high school, and it seemed like kindergarten. So my grade point average at 4.0 went down to 1.7. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Okay. Yeah. And I was bored. I was of really course. bored in high school. Uh, any goals? Any I mean, did you have an, an inkling of what you might wish to do? Well, I, I had an, an inkling for photography. I liked photography a lot. Mm -hmm. My grandma had given me a camera when I was in eighth grade, and I kind of grabbed a hold of it and I started taking a, a lot of pictures. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. My, my dad had, at the time, well, he had about 80 gas stations. He ended up with more than that, but he had about 80 gas stations. So I pumped some gas. And then after high school, there was a gas station that became available. And dad said, why don't you lease this station from me and you run it? And I ended up having two of his stations that I leased. I didn't own the property, but... I leased them from him and, you know, the gas and oil had been running in my family and been running in my veins. So mm -hmm. I felt that I would go into that business with, with dad at some point, you know, on the, on the larger scale. Okay. So that was yeah. quite cool. So you yeah. never, so you weren't highly intelligent. You uh, were easily bored. You, um, had your bed made because there was this opportunity. You didn't have to fight for it. You didn't have to work hard for it. There was no struggle involved. It's the classic kind of um, of uh, oh, the, the, the perfect storm brewing there, isn't it? Well, you could call it mayhem. Also. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right? Because the alcohol is still there. The, the, hey, the cool feeling of being the, the cool dude with the joint and with the alcohol and with the skiing and all that is yeah. there. And that doesn't gel so much with the, um, during the day, pouring gas and doing invoices right. and doing, you know, payroll. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So there was, there was already a split personality, daytime and nighttime. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 How was the nighttime? I, I'd already had my first DUI. I'd wrapped my mom's <laughs> car around a telephone pole in high school <laughs> after a high school care. <laughs> okay. So the writing was on the wall there. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did yeah. it continue? <laughs> well, it, it, it continued, and post-high school, it continued. Um, I ended up buying a house with a friend of mine that we were really good friends, and we bought a house. And then about 10 months later, he was killed in a drunk driving accident. He was oh. driving. And him and a passenger, a mutual friend of ours, the two of them um, died in that accident. You would think it would slow me down a little bit, but it didn't. In all fairness, that was the 80s. The 80s, everyone drank um, in your environment. Um, all the films were basically everyone drank like fish from James Bond to Mel Gibson to you name it, um, heroes drank. So it was all normalized. 
in our society, certainly in Germany, it was um, in, in, I remember in, in Germany, we, we built something on our house. And my mother told me before going to school, make sure you put a case of beer out there for the workers, because there was just normal, they get beer as part of their breakfast and lunch. Nowadays, as a, as a real estate investor and property investor, I think, why the hell did I want to have drunken craftsmen and but yeah. it was normal that was the 80s in germany you think what the fuck but yeah. it was what it was so society was different so if there are younger people listening here and thinking what the hell well actually that was there is a certain it was what it was kind of thing yeah. happening here okay yeah. yeah and you know the the courts were involved of course mm. and um i ended up with another dui and I, the way that I got that, I I was now 22, and I was leaving a bar that I like to go to a lot. It was somewhat of a dive bar. It was a dive bar plus. It wasn't total dive. There was <laughs> divier bars in that one, but it was down there, right? <laughs> and people would come to my house a, a lot afterwards for the after party. And so I, I left the bar, headed to the, to the store, to the local 7-Eleven store before they stopped selling alcohol at 2.30. And at about 2.20, a house jumped out in front of me, and I drove into the living room. That's a very inconsiderate uh, house, I must say. I couldn't believe that they would I know, I know. Here you are. And once I realized what happened, I put it in reverse trying to get out of there. But I was stuck somehow in this house. Did you offer the owner maybe some vodka or so? Hey, do you want a drink? Or, you know, how, how do we deal with that? No, but I did tell him. I remember the 7-Eleven store is just a few blocks away. And I told them I needed to get there before they closed. <laughs> or before they stopped selling, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so a lot of insight is being shown there a lot of remorse i see that um <laughs> okay meanwhile the church knows you well it seems yeah. like only yesterday michael that you were here oh it was yesterday it, that you it were here. was yeah. <laughs> well yeah. okay did you did did you see the signs or how long did it continue what did have to happen <laughs> well, it continued a little bit longer, and I'll tell you, I had one more DUI after that. And I'd mentioned photography. I, I'd been out on a photography trip, and I had a travel van, and I slept in my van, and I was in Idaho, and I was coming back home from Idaho, and I went through a town called Pendleton, Oregon, in eastern Oregon. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I called my girlfriend in Portland said, I'll be there pretty soon. I'd been gone about six weeks on this trip. And that was about two in the afternoon. Well, at about midnight, I was driving about 90 miles an hour west of Pendleton, which is out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and there's a, what was called Umantilla Army Depot. Back then they were, they were storing nerve gas out there. There was all the, the mounds out there, hundreds of them, however many. And I was the only vehicle out there, right? And so I was speeding along, trying to get back to Portland. And I noticed the cop had turned around and was now behind me as a state trooper. And I couldn't figure out why he wasn't passing me. So I put my arm out the window and tried to wave him past me as I'm driving down the fog line. And I found out later that this was going on for nine miles. And my thought at the time was, he's trying to get me to stop because of the nerve gas. It's leaking. <laughs> that was my thought at the time. Okay. No, Absurd, that's it. wouldn't you say? Ah, <laughs> oh, priceless. Yeah. Priceless. And uh, when he did stop you, I mean, if you don't stop um, after a... Um, after a police car chases you for nine miles, they tend to be a bit pissed, um, in, regardless in which country you are, okay? It, whilst you're 
the police maybe has got a bad rap um, over there being a bit overzealous. <laughs> no cop likes to chase someone <laughs> for nine miles. Let's right. get that right. <laughs> right, right. Now, I didn't get it. I got a DUI and a speeding ticket for whatever reason. And I don't know why they didn't give me a looting. Uh, but for some reason, they did. Oh, but that's was. This was a really nice guy, okay? It was a really nice guy, apparently, yeah. It was 1983, right? Um, and so I started getting sober. I had my license taken away. And I started having these periods of sobriety and started getting some help and um, finding places I could go to talk to other people about my drinking and realizing it was not the greatest thing that I could be doing. So if there was a way that I could control it, control mm. my drinking, then life would be so much better. Right? Cause you know, there's this idea that, you know, an alcoholic wants to drink like a normal drinker. Exactly. Right. It's, there's like this obsession to do that. Well, for so long, I thought I was drinking like a normal person because everybody that I was around was drinking like me, or so I thought, <laughs> right? So I had to get past that idea that perhaps my drinking wasn't normal. Perhaps mm. I wasn't just unlucky in the one getting caught. Mm. There were reasons that I was getting caught. And in hindsight, one of the things I realized too is I had a few oh-my-God moments. Because, like, getting arrested on the side of a highway out in the middle of nowhere in eastern Oregon, and you're getting handcuffs and putting in the back of the car, my first thought coming up was, oh, my God, how could this happen? Please get me out of this, God. Right? That was, that was my thinking at the time. And... Um, so I started getting sober. They they took my license for four years, which was tough time. And but I kept doing photography. I would I would work at a portrait studio now and, and go to the studio, and be able to shoot. Cool. And I was I was good. I I I love doing photography. I, I love doing that a lot. And you know, I still do a lot of it today, but for different reasons, right? So, so one second there, because okay. here you are, a young man, you still got the same scars, you still now have got the guilt and the shame of your, of your DUIs, so things have not really gotten better, but you were, you're now without the crutch. So now there was no alcohol there to numb you and to get rid of the inhibitions and, and to, so, you know, the good friend alcohol was gone. So... What did you do? Often enough, people I talk to, they say, well, I actually then found whatever the other poison is. Was yeah. there a whack-a-mole kind of addiction moving across to something else? There wasn't really another addiction. I mean, it wasn't like I gave up drugs and then or gave up alcohol and started doing drugs. Yeah. I mean, the alcohol and drugs work together. Right. I, I was doing a lot of photography. I, I did have a girlfriend. Uh, so we did spend a, a lot of time together. I wouldn't call it getting into like sexual addiction, typical type sexual addiction yeah. type stuff. And, you know, there were times I, I wasn't totally sober yet. I mean, I had a year a couple of times, mm. but then I drank because I was okay. Mm. Was, been long enough and you know, I'm, I'm sure it's okay <laughs> and most of us find out the hard way that nope yeah. uh there is another night that you can't remember and a That's headache right. from hell the next day because your body is no longer used to it yeah about that <laughs> and then i had another bottom i i i, I skidded on the ground again or broke the asphalt anyway I didn't just skid, I broke the asphalt and I started walking with the cane. You're talking about a crutch. And I almost said, well, wait a minute. My crutch, then actually my, my cane is behind this little bookshelf. <laughs> no I, I had to start walking on a cane 
And I ended up in the, in the hospital, vascular disease, peripheral vascular disease. My right leg, the popliteal artery, 100% blocked. My left leg was 65% blocked. And was that as a result of trauma uh, prior to that? Or, I mean, after all, when you bump a, a house, um, when you try to win car versus house, most of the time the house wins. So yeah. where the, was there injury to your vascular system that explains why you suddenly had a disease that turns up in the 60s, 70s normally, at in the yeah. mid-20s? Yeah, yeah. I'll come back to that in a minute. Cool. Because there's one thing... Um, that I discovered later that may have affected, well, there was a couple of things. My dad had died about a year earlier from a heart attack. And okay. he had died at 58. His dad died at 52. I'm 63 okay. yeah. And uh, my, yeah. I'm the youngest of four brothers, the four boys. My oldest passed a couple of years ago from cancer, but the other two are still well and alive. But when, when they looked at my legs, and um, I don't, I don't know what you think about swearing on your show, but the doctor—you go for it, man. The doctor looked at me, and he looked at my right leg, and said, "We may have to take your leg." And I said, "Fuck you! You're not taking mm. my leg." Mm. And he said, "Well, we need to get you in here now to do a fem pop." And I didn't know what a fem pop was at the time where they take the femoral artery and move it down. and It's bypass surgery, essentially, but in the legs. And I was pretty busy, and I said, well, I'll come back in three days. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I came back, and then they, they did the surgery, and it restored uh, my blood flow at the time. And I still wasn't quite done, though, with drinking. And a couple weeks later, I ended up in jail one more time because I knocked on the wrong door at the wrong place in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, drunk. And um, I ended up back in jail for one more time. I, I ended up in, I went to a treatment center in January 87 and I maintained my sobriety for 23 months until December, 1988. And I got an argument with my mom. I got an argument with my girlfriend on the phone. And I knew that if I went and paid off this old bar tab, that I would be okay. And that I wouldn't be so angry anymore. So I went to downtown Portland and said, you know, John here, which was the guy who I owed the money to, the bartender. And he said, well, it's night off. And I said, I got this bar tab that's a couple years old. Can I pay it off? And he said, sure. So I paid it off, and then I had about three drinks in 10 minutes, and I was off and running. And I'm making kind of a long story short, but I ended up in the hospital the next morning. And somebody came to me and looked at me, somebody that, that I knew, somebody that was sober, somebody that had been sober for a little bit. And he came to me, and he said, are you ready? And at that time... I was ready. I've been so mad at God for years. I had huge resentments towards God, but God was the last person on the block, so to speak, that I could go to. And I said I was ready. And I remember the swooshing feeling that I had when I said, I'm ready. God, take over my life. I remember just like, I mean, it was like an energetic feel. Right. And I've had that a couple of times in my life. So I now have been sober uh, since December 14th, 1988, for 33 years. <laughs> Congratulations, brother. I mean, wow. <laughs> what a story. So I've what been sober story. more than half my life. Wow. But isn't it an amazing thing? I, I loved how you said uh, you were resentful to God. Um, now, in all fairness, I'm I'm secular, so I Jesus Christ has not yet touched my life. Um, so let's let's be cynical. You were you were angry with an imaginary friend about exactly what? Why were oh, you resentful? I'm very clear, very clear about that. Why? So what, what were you what, angry about? 
when when I had my water skiing accident, I had a near death experience, uh-huh. and I left my body, uh-huh. and I felt like I was a- around a group of spirits, right? And all of a sudden, I felt myself coming back to my body, and I reached out to them. I said, "I don't want to go back," and they said, "You're not through yet. You have to go back." Mm. And I remember after I started healing and, you know, a year or so later, just like being mad at God, like, why would God send me back? Why would God send me back to drink? Why would God send me back to do these things? Why would God let somebody die in my life? Why, you know, all this stuff. So I developed this Uh, resentment. And I will tell you something, and I don't take, don't say this very often, but it's very close and dear to my heart. There was a person, real or imagined, I don't know, his name was Fred. And he was standing next to me when I was outside of my body. Mm. And guess what type of shirt he had on at the time? I don't know. He had a red plaid shirt like you. (laughs) (laughs) And he stood there and he was in his blue jeans. And I call this, I still talk to Fred sometimes. And he's like my spirit guide, right? Fred the spirit guide. He didn't have some woo-woo Indian name or something. It was Fred the spirit guide. (laughs) It's, and whilst I'm laughing, I'm laughing with, um, with, with envy, I guess, Mm. because you've had this experience that you, however, um, were clearly not ready yet to deal with which did not give you answers, but if it all gave you more questions and more doubts and more anything like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, you know, there's a prayer that I really like. And one of the sentences in this prayer says, take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Well, If that is true, then the only way that I can be of service and to be of help is to have had those difficulties, to be able to have on that understanding and that experience, you know, and, you know, going through hell, so to speak, to be able to, to now help other people. And like the book that I wrote, the book wasn't intended, there's actually different intentions for the book, but the primary intention for the book wasn't about me. It was about helping somebody else that if they read the book, they might get sober too, if they Mm. were in a place and they were ready to do so. Beautiful. But you're so right. You need to be ready to hear the message. And we know if you do research that about 95% of alcoholics, people who drink dangerously, um, will say there's absolutely nothing wrong with my drinking. There's complete denial. And in effect, that's a hallmark of addiction. That's a hallmark of alcoholism. And you can take the horse to water, but you can't make it drink, uh, make, make it drink, however it works. <laughs> um, so it is, uh, it is a fact. So I for sure was in the same shoes. I for sure was full of resentment, uh, not against God, but against, I guess, bullies uh, in my surrounding environment. And I must say it is um, only because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they are not out there to get you. So there are a lot of lot of not so nice people around. There are a lot of institutions who have got maybe different priorities and core values than maybe what you are fighting for. And uh, in general terms, they win. In general terms, they uh, they have got the better lawyers and the better the better ways of of putting the thumb screws on. So, therefore, my resentment was maybe quite rightly so against those what I call bullies. At the same token, though, um, it takes two to tango, and I certainly uh, I've learned so much later that indeed I had a role to play in all those fights, all those quarrels, all those negative things. Um, did you 
come across a similar thing? Maybe maybe during step four, I mean, don't know which kind of system was was used to help you, to guide you. In my case, it was a 12-step program. And step four means a, uh, a brutal inventory of what is happening in you. Does that sound familiar? Did you go through a similar journey? I, I, I did. And I, I at the, the time, I had the person that came to me in the hospital and he said, are you ready? And I said, I'm ready. And he says, okay, considering the condition you are in, we're going to do 12 steps in 12 weeks. He says, right. if you don't do that, you're going to die. So I know some people that go through the steps, they may take a year to do the third or fourth step. <laughs> and, you know, he, he showed me how to do it a step a week for 12 weeks. And whenever I might be working with somebody else, I will do a similar process. And, you know, when, when 12 steps programs really originated, they would often do it in a weekend. And having said that, this take a couple of years. Oh, please, please. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because, um, I I was in a superb, beautiful uh, inpatient uh, rehabilitation. Um, I loved the, the guys to bits. They're no longer around. So the, the former Capri Rehabilitation Hospital is, oh, they really showed me how to live and helped me. And I'm, I'm a type A personality and I was a first class student. I went to town. And I went through, and I, I think I got to about step six, seven, working more or less around the clock um, towards that, because I, I took it like a, as like a, an exam in university. You go all out or you don't go at all. So having said that, what I had to learn down the line is that trauma comes in layers and healing comes in layers too. So therefore, this is not a race. This is not a, oh, I've done it in 68 days. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. <laughs> you deal with shit. You deal with shit as it arrives uh, or arises, shall I say. And sometimes you can deal with it in a, in a quick way by just someone helping you to understand what happened and maybe the role that you played and give you maybe a different different way of looking at it. That might be as much as it takes. So that might be one session with a psychologist or with a life coach or a mentor. In other cases, it might take you a few weeks to actually accept the diagnosis of PTSD and the trauma that actually had occurred and then finding the right people to help you. And sometimes that might be a year. So it might be actually take far longer to work on a particular sub-problem um, that has significantly contributed to it. But if, uh, you know, my trauma doesn't define me. Yes, I've gone through more shit than I like care to remember. But um, that was the past. Um, the resentfulness, the, 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 the negativity is gone. But it took me months and years to deal with those aspects, leave alone all the other shit that is happening in my life. So I think it's important to say that, that there is not one system that works for all, that there is not one magic person who somehow can guide you towards, towards salvation. Nah, nah, not in my experience. If there's someone out there, please raise your hand. I'll check you out. Yeah, but, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's the... An, there. an interesting thing I'd, I'd like to mention, something I heard you say was about resentment and... Um, one of the things that uh, my friend did with me at the time when I was going through the steps, you know, there's the part about resentments and who do you have resentments to? And oftentimes people struggle with that. And I certainly struggled with that. So one of the things that he had me do is to write down everybody I knew. My mom, my dad, my girlfriend, <laughs> the people I worked with. But you know, the, the list was long. I mean, and we started going through each person individually and said, anything happened with this person? Your mom, right. well, blah, blah, blah. What about your dad? Blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, what about your brother? What about your girlfriend? 
And then he made his point pretty quickly that my grudge list was right there in front of me, but really everybody I knew, right? And then I was able to see my part. Mm. Very powerful, very powerful steps, isn't it? My goodness. And so you were, you had actually a really beautiful journey there because you were ready, you were able to listen. And more importantly, you had a mentor who was able to dedicate himself to be there for you and to hold a mirror in front of your face and let you learn, let you experience the lessons so yeah. that you can draw your conclusions and move on. Right. So it sounds like a very active kind of step. You took action, a lot of action on a continuous basis. And yeah. that is how the magic happens. So you can read as many books about AA or a 12-step program or, or you know, buy my book, My Steps to Sobriety. Fantastic book, by the way. Just as much <laughs> as his book. Hey, come on. We do some show and tell whilst we are there. Show me your book. <laughs> you show me yours. I'll show you mine. <laughs> Perfect. Falling down and getting up. Michael oh, Harris. Man. Guys, so you can't see it. It's a fantastic book. Looks stunning. And here is My Steps to Sobriety. So beautiful. You could go out there, buy these two books now, even read them. But if you do bugger all about it, if you don't actually take action, then that's just fine. And guess what? That's what I've done for the better part of probably two decades there is not a self-help book that I have not read during that time, typically with a glass of wine in my hand whilst I was reading the self-help book. Yeah. <laughs> did I take action? No, no. Yeah. But you did. You did. Are, are you familiar with the law of Goya? Nine. I, I saw it in your description, but I wanted to ask you. Well, Sorry. are you familiar like, with the law of attraction? Absolutely. And like the book, The Secret and Rhonda Byrne and, and all yeah. of that? Maybe give us a quick, a quick two, three sentence synopsis of what the law of attraction actually refers to, and then we go to the law of Goya. Just the people out there um, who might not know about it. Okay. Well, the, the law of attraction is essentially is we receive what we put out. I mean, saying it really, I mean, there's a couple of different ways of, of saying mm -hmm. it. But it also, a lot of people throw rocks at the law of attraction because some people think you can sit on your couch. And you're going to get a million dollars from your Aunt <laughs> Betty at some point. And for whatever reason, you never get it. And so they think the law of attraction doesn't work. Uh, 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 beautiful. So John Asaraf, which was part of the book, The Secret, and a lot of people know who he is, um, came up with what's called the law of Goya. The law of Goya is really simple. G-O-Y-A. Get off your ass. <laughs> Love right? it. Love it. So you actually got <laughs> to do something, right? Indeed. If you want a car, love attraction, if you want to have a new Mercedes Benz <laughs> that costs you a hundred thousand bucks, well, it's not just gonna show up. I mean, you might buy a ticket and you know win it somehow. But likely to do the law of attraction, you need to take action. You need uh -huh. to go out and make so much money. You need to put it in the bank. You need yeah. to get a loan. Whatever it is, those action steps you need to get your vehicle, because mm. it's not just going to show up in your driveway one day. Very unlikely. <laughs> right? So the law of Goya is necessary to follow up to make the law of attraction work. Oh, I love it. I love it. That will be a new favorite of mine. <laughs> There's only so many ways you can say take action um, until it grows old, until my, my tongue bleeds. Uh, yeah. At least the law of Goya. <laughs> yeah, the law of People, Goya. <laughs> good on you. Okay. So you took action then. So because here you are with, you. I mean, in some uh, conservative circles, you would have been called a loser. 
Um, you were an alcoholic. It didn't you... have to be conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been anybody. <laughs> but you proved them wrong because you said, hey, actually, I'll get my shit together. Uh, how did that journey start? Because there is the law of attraction. You took action. You actually went out there. You changed your life. And that changed quite dramatically. How did that story happen? Well, I really felt after that swooshing feeling on December 14th, 1988, that a whole new world opened up to me. Hmm. I was still doing a little photography, but I actually started becoming a mortgage broker. And then I ended up working in the back office of this small company. There was about 50 employees, and we did training materials, mostly for large corporations and government. And the owner of the company decided that he was going to sell it, and Mosby Yearbook came along, which was a subsidiary of Times Mirror, and they wanted to buy it. They were sitting on about $400 million of cash at the time. And Mark wanted to sell his company, and they were out buying lots of little publishing companies. And so he made a deal with them and got $7 million bucks, which I thought was about $6 million more than what it was worth. But <laughs> I was managing the money now at this time. You know, this is 94. I've been sober about six years now. Yeah. And speaking about resentments, I got a little mad after the sale happened because I, I thought Mark should share some of what he got with the, some of the employees or all the employees, mm. give all the employees a thousand buck bonus or something, you know, 1994, you know, something like that. That would be nice. One, though, yeah. yeah. He didn't do it. And I thought, why am I making this guy a bunch of money sitting in the back room when I could be doing this for me? Ooh. That was my last job. Ooh, very nice. I, yeah, I put in my notice to the controller at the time. I, I think we had 52 employees at the time. And I said, this company is going to be gone in six months. He says, oh, no, Mosby's got all this money. We've got this new credit line, blah, 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 blah. I said, it's going to be gone. Six months later, there was three employees. It's just Ouch. like, Yeah. Is that because it imploded due to other people having the same resentment and the same um, voting with their feet? Or was it because um, it was easier to just gobble up that company, uh, get rid of competition and, and take on the best of it for their own? I think Mosby was on a buying binge and they went out and bought a bunch of small publishing companies like that, five, mm. seven, 10, 20 million bucks. Mm. In a couple of years' time, most of them uh, closed. Mosby ended up in bankruptcy. Right. So they, they just had a pocket full of money, and they thought they would go spend it. That'd be sad. That'd be sad. So the grass is not always greener, guys. I mean, no. that's a good lesson. Well, but it was know. greener for me. <laughs> but only because you went out there to actually go out there, water yourself, put the seed right. in, kick right. ass. So, right. law of Goya, you did. Law of Goya. So, I, I, I learned how to trade options. Ah, And nice. by the mid-90s, I, I had a pocket full of money myself. Mm. And I took a couple of years off. I, I had started doing yoga in 1987, early in my sobriety. Mm. And I started doing yoga, and it was changing everything for me. At the time, I had tailor-made suits. I was a pretty slick guy. I would go to this tailor in Portland and make my suits and shirts and all this stuff. Because mm. uh, I was hobnobbing with some banker-type people and investors and that kind of stuff, too. And, um, but I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to put on my suit anymore. I just wanted to go do yoga class. That was all. <laughs> and I ended up in this yoga training with this guy named Bikram. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but some people have. And, he was a pretty wild and crazy guy from Calcutta or Kolkata. And um, I was one of his early teachers, but I went to heal my body because I still had about 12 years of pain. I had claudication in, in my calves and my uh. legs still. And in two weeks, all of that was gone. Very, very intense practice in a hot room. Bikram is the hot stuff. 
So it was in a hot room and I healed my body. Huh. This is. Huh. Yeah. Look so, at you. See, I, I was pretty vibrant, right? Ha, ha, ha. Who is the tall dude next to you? <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Yeah, stop. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I amazing. So stop, 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 stop. So who introduced you to that? So I mean, that is, yeah. I mean, how, how did it come about that you go from, from zero to hero uh, in, in virtually no, no time? Was it just something that, that really, that you got stuck with or how did it go? Well, the first time I did yoga, I went to a place called the Pritikin Center, which was in Santa Monica. It was about a year and a half after I left the hospital. I left AMA against medical advice when I wanted to do more surgery. And I ended up at the Pritikin Center because I'd read a book that said that um, changing your diet and doing a few things could help reverse vascular Mm -hmm. and cardiovascular Mm -hmm. blockages and issues. So I went down there. It was on the beach in Santa Monica by the pier. And the doctors in Portland, the professors in Portland, this is 87, were telling me when it was hurting, which the claudication there's a lot of pain with. Um, they would say, stop. Well, the doctor down there said, when it's hurting, keep going. Mm. And, you know, it builds new collateral blood vessels. You know, there's a deeper understanding of it today, but they had a yoga class in the basement. And I started doing some yoga. And at the time, it was just a little stretching here and there. But I came back to Portland after there. I went down there twice and started doing some yoga at one of the local gyms, and I was really liking it. I felt better by doing it. I never thought I would do it. Mm. And then I did my first hot yoga class in 93, and then I showed up at Bikram's in 98 at his teacher training, Mm. and I was off and running. I Mm. ended up with a couple of yoga studios. I did very well. Um, I helped some other people. We generated uh, about 40 million, a little bit more than 40 million in sales with anywhere from about a 20 to 35% net on that. Mm. So pretty decent net on that. Um, Nice. And when we say hot yoga, we are not referring to Lycra. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) hot yoga is probably, tell us a bit more about that. It's basically uh, performing yoga exercises within a a heated environment. Um, 105 degrees. That is quite hot. And we're yeah. talking Fahrenheit, guys. And don't, don't heat the sauna up to 105. Yeah, yeah, not now. Celsius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's let's get it right. But still, I mean, to actually 105 is what? That's 41 so degrees. Now that's a decent thing. That's a decent temperature yeah. to do uh, yoga in. So what you're doing, actually, you're, you're really uh, having the dual benefit of heat therapy the heat in its own right does actually tremendous things in your body and can help you tremendously um and in addition to that you do yoga the breathing the stretching so it's a combination of both and again why not why not supercharge your recovery why not supercharge your healing um it is beautiful and that is sort of you know it just you know, if you think, wow, what could I do the next three months to actually get myself better, you could do far worse than actually considering uh, either regular sauna, or maybe even if there is a hot yoga or something similar in your area, go for it. Go oh, for it. About, Absolutely. Exactly. What have you got to lose? Yeah, exactly. Nothing. And, <laughs> exactly. That's about it. No, yeah. wonderful. But it's amazing uh, to hear your recovery, to hear your improvement of um, of your life. Because in all fairness, I venture an educated guess that it was not just you bending yourself into a pretzel in a hot environment. <laughs> I think there was more to do with that. And that typically becomes as in once you start living a certain lifestyle, you think about hydration, you think about nutrition, you think about your sleep, you think about the whole thing, the whole foundation of good habits that start making a difference. And that is basically you suddenly have 
let you suddenly took the, the foot off the brake as far as the healing and the, the self-restoration of your body is concerned. Because our our normal lifestyle, the hectic, the hustle and bustle, the yeah, I'm always busy, I'm always busy. And then when I'm not busy, I'm sitting on my phone and then I'm checking my emails and I do it. Fuck's sake. Come on, that is that is not how you are designed. And, and that's part of, I mean, I love getting into the woods. You asked me about that earlier. What What is it that I like to do? I like to go, I call it going dark. Hmm. I get off nice. the screens, nice. you know, the laptop, the desktops, the yeah. phones, and I'm out in the, in the woods in nature. You know, and for me, my healing, I found was three really simple things. Walking, hmm. eating the right foods. And yoga. Beautiful. None of those things really cost anything as such. <laughs> no doctor is making a lot of money off of it. And the doctors didn't know why I had vascular disease, you know, in my 20s. Mm. And here I am, you know, over 30, let's see, that was 86 when I had my first surgery. So 36 years later. I'm still alive. And they said I would be dead within a couple of months if I walked out of the hospital. There you go. Just out of interest, did yeah. you more recently undergo any more advanced scanning for insurance purposes, et cetera? Did you do a calcium score of your coronaries? No. I Like you, I've got a very strong family history of uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, yeah. So I, I probably shouldn't really be here, um, A, due to my lifestyle, and B, due to my genes. Mm -hmm. So about a year, year, maybe two years by now uh, ago, I thought, okay, I, I still have zero symptoms whatsoever. I better do actually a calcium score, which is a CT scan of your chest, yep. where they see how much pluck there is how many pizzas are stuck in the in the blood vessels that right, provide right, yeah, oxygen yeah. um to your to your heart and my calcium score is zero so basically i've got no plaque sitting there and i've got baby arteries yeah. now that I, I is, did that about 10 years ago 15 uh, years ago i did one of those yeah and i was fine too so and that ex exactly shows by you changing your life, by you actually um, working in a different way where you allow your body to heal itself, why you you provide your body with the rest and the the exact the exact environment yeah. to kickstart the healing process. Now that is gold. And we too are living examples that the past does not equal the future. We are living example that the genes that are handed down from mommy and daddy, they only play a certain role. Your choices make it all the worthwhile, this, this life. You choose if you want to have dementia. You choose if you want to have a stroke. You choose if you want to have a heart attack. Yeah. Now, these are extreme statements, and some people it's might be extreme. very... Really extreme, yeah. But... In all fairness, there are more and more people I'm meeting that are on a similar trajectory as I am. And in all fairness, guys, there is a whole movement out there called biohacking, where people are trying to reverse age and are basically achieving those goals, bringing the body back to a state where it was meant to be, not in the constant rat wheel, uh, hamster wheel um, that we have created for ourselves. Yeah. So this is the area of functional medicine. This is the area of the area of so many other beautiful, beautiful um, movements nowadays. This is this is amazing stuff. So guys, go out there. This is your life. This is your, your God, how many more days have you got to live? Hopefully many. And each of these days has the same amount of hours, same amount of seconds. You get to make choices. You've got the privilege to live. So go out there, get off your ass and actually do something. Okay. And, and choose who you want to be when you grow up. And it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 70. 
Okay, I have got another 50 years to go and I want to make the most out of it. And that is the passion with which I now turn up to live my life. I turn up, I show up, and I think that is that is 80% of success, just showing up, even when you don't like to. Yes, of course, of course, I love a cheesecake, a good German cheesecake. Yes, please. Okay. And from now on, then I even have one. And I have a big smile on my face when I have it. Now I know that the gluten in there and the dairy in there is not really so good for me. But since I'm not every day eating the cheesecake for lunch and dinner and some breakfast, um, it's probably all right. Okay, so make the choices. Work on your recovery, not work on your addiction. Don't work on your relapse. Work on living a life that's worthwhile living. And, you know, Michael is there. He is the living example. Read his book for crying out loud. Go out there, read his book, and leave a review. Okay? So that is the, the, the key that I want to tell you. Michael, if, if, uh, if people are really, really gelling with you and want to learn more about you, where can they find you? What, where are you hanging out? Uh, where, where can we get your book? Well, you can get your book at my book at any bookseller. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes mm-hmm. and Noble or wh- whatever your local bookseller is. Um, you can get it, like I said, anywhere. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I- I'm really grateful that that's the case. And um, the other thing, and, you know, we talked a lot about stories and about getting our story out, about writing it down, about this step work stuff. And I've always been somebody that, like stories. And I believe it's really important for us as individuals to have a self-revelation, so to speak, of our own stories. We can read lots of other books. And I want people, of course, to read my book. And I would also invite people to really discover more who they are Mm. and base their life on self-revelation of who they are. Not what's in my book, not what's in your book, not what's in anybody else's book, but what's in their book. Mm. So with that being said, you know, I've done a lot of stuff with storytelling and I co-founded a company called Endless Stages with a friend of mine that's an an actor and, and a speaker as well. And we really help people get their stories out. We get them on stage. We we do things with podcasting. We work closely with Podmatch. Um, and right now, with, with Alex and Podmatch, and right now, uh, we have four people on the leaderboard in the top 10 that are part of, of our group. And we're taking over the top 10, and Alex knows <laughs> it in, in, over there. And so we're, we're working closely with them. And we're, we're actually working on getting a 100-person leaderboard so we can get 100 people on the leaderboard. And again, why is that so important? Is that both my, my friend Tyler and myself really believe that it's so important to speak up, to tell our truth, to open up, to reveal who we are, to be of service to others. So a lot of my focus right now is on that idea of helping people with story. And we have lots of really great fun, innovative industry type frameworks to help people do that. You know, so that's endless stages. It's just very simple, endlessstages.com. We have a free group and so they can join that free group through that, through that website. And on there, they also get a whole membership site all for free, a bunch of different videos, how to get over nervousness, how to create a story, <laughs> all sorts of different things that that would help anybody um, really start to be a speaker. And, you know, we also have a lot of experienced speakers and experienced podcasters and, and experienced hosts and et cetera, that have joined our group that have accelerated what they're, they are doing with the tools that, that are there. So um, just a lot of emphasis on that right now, getting stories out to the world. And that is so important. Because our stories are here, our lives must make, must have a meaning. 
I mean, I when I came, when I was still battered and bruised and came out of my low and I ended up out of rehab and I was an empty canvas. I was empty. I was an empty shell of a man and I've reinvented myself. But that transformation from darkness to light, my goodness, there was so much darkness in my life. Was that all for nothing? No, because our, our stories, they are, they are just there so that we can make a difference. Because our stories mean that we can be the candle in the darkness of someone else, or even hopefully the torch or some bloody light tower, like beam. Because that is, yeah, otherwise, all the suffering that I went through, was that just for nothing? Just, just for me to grow? That's it? And then I keep my mouth shut? No way. No way in hell. So no, Michael, I could not agree more. I love what you're doing there. I mean, you are, you are the catalyst, hopefully, to change for a lot of people. Because if they look at you and think, well, if he can get his shit sorted, maybe I've got a chance. <laughs> and that's exactly how I want you to go away from this, from this show, okay? This is our key message. The past does not equal the future. And if you decide to change, find the right model and find the right support group and find the right people that you hold yourself accountable to, then it's just a matter of how far back do you pull this arrow? Because, I mean, it's pain that pulls this arrow back. You are now, instead of just shooting all over the place, you decide, now, fuck that. I want to be that person. And the pain is pulling you back. You just need to let go. And that means creating a power team around you where you are the dumbest member of the team and then you go out there live with passion and learn from others who are a bit further down the line and that is in this case michael that is in this case me uh, but there will be many others out there just it's okay not to be okay but it's not okay to just stay there and don't ask for help it's you know go out there live with passion so, uh, Michael, Michael, you're an amazing man. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. This was a fantastic interview. I truly, truly am honored that you came onto my show. Thank you. And and I, like I said earlier, it's just like I was waiting all day just to get on this show. <laughs> because if I, I, I knew a previous guest of yours that, that I had met um, uh, that had talked some about sobriety, too, uh, that I saw him before that before he started getting sober. Uh, and then I, I saw him when he started getting sober, and, and now he's been sober for a fairly long period of time. And it's just like, yeah, that rocks, you know, because he came to me <laughs> early on and said, hey, I think this, I've got this, and I, I want to talk to you about it. And um, nice he's life. made it right now. I mean, you, you, you never graduate, because there's always a chance to go out. Uh. And, you know, he's talking about it. And it's like, you know, that experience, strength, and hope ideas that take away my difficulties, you know, that I may help somebody else. But for us to understand each other, we need to have those difficulties. So I'm grateful for everything that I went through as mayhem as it was for the first 30 years of my life. Now, the next 33 years so far of my life have been working to help other people in some way, shape, or form. Ah, beautiful. And may our energy last for a very long time. And yeah. the cool thing is we, we are both still young. We are both still growing, growing boys in our endeavors. So yeah. who knows what the next year brings, what the next five years bring, etc. I'm excited about that journey. So yeah. guys Likewise. out there, why don't you come along onto this journey? Uh, we are having a ball of a time. Um, I don't know where you are hanging out, but we are hanging out with the cool kids. So Come on. <laughs> it's a it's a cool brotherhood and sisterhood of those people who have gone through shit and have decided to now take action and change their life. So, Michael, look after yourself and you guys out there live with passion. Bye. Thank you. Dream